Blessed Lord, we do sit with that teaching we just heard from you about the end and about the persecutions. And we think about how our story from the book of Acts ends with your servant, St. Paul, sitting in prison. Pray, Lord, that you would open your scriptures to us this morning. And that through the example of your servant Paul, we would see the truth of your other words that nothing is impossible with God. There is no hindrance to your gospel. So Lord, speak to us. Encourage us as your church this morning, we pray. Amen. Then go ahead and be seated. I don't know how many of you share with me in the sort of shell-shocked feeling of realizing that in a week and a half, we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. Is that craziness? I suppose it shouldn't be that hard for us to start to wrap our minds around because, you know, the, the sort of Christmas shopping feeding frenzy has already begun, right? I mean, stores, I've noticed, already have their Christmas decorations up and out. The propaganda has already been piped into our radios and our TVs and our streaming media outlets. But before we get caught up and carried away with the Christmas frenzy that has replaced Advent in most of the world at large, we celebrate Thanksgiving. I was actually reflecting this week on the holiday of Thanksgiving, and I was thinking about what a watershed event the establishing of the Plymouth colony and then the Massachusetts Bay colony thereafter. What a watershed moment that was in the life of our nation, especially in the religious life of our nation and, frankly, the rest of the English-speaking world. Because by founding the first New England colonies as religious refuges from European persecution, it would set what would become this country on a track to normalize, frankly, a very particular and at that time fairly obscure set of religious sects. So I pronounced that very clearly. (laughs) Religious groups. Let's stick with that. To the point where 400 years later, when I share with people that I'm an Anglican priest, I'm generally met with sort of blank stares, right? (laughs) You know, I... I still, to this day, get it spelled out by other people when I'm telling them about an Angelican, right? And nobody even knows how to spell it, right? What's Anglican? And only the third largest Christian body in the world still blank looks, right? But, you know, everybody knows what a Baptist is, right? Am I right? Everybody knows the Baptists. Never mind the fact that the pilgrims fled here to avoid the label of heretic dissenters, Right? But that watershed moment changed the religious history of the English-speaking world forever as it normalized those strands of Protestantism. Well, this morning, as we come to the end of our fall series from the book of Acts, walking as we have with the early church, learning from them the ways they learned to be Jesus' gospel presence, in the successive gospel-deficient areas that the Lord would lead them. Here at the end, we come to the account of a similar watershed moment, one that frankly had even more of an impact on the shape of the Christian church universal 
more so than the settlement of the United States by heretic Protestants. You know, I'm being facetious when I call them that, right? But at the very outset of our series, we were reminded of Jesus' words in chapter 1 that the, the disciples would be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the outermost ends of the earth, uttermost ends of the earth. And throughout St. Luke's narrative, we've, we've tracked that development, right? We first witnessed the church flourishing in Jerusalem and then the church under persecution being pushed out and, and so the gospel going to Samaria. And then St. Philip encountered an Ethiopian who would take the gospel into North Africa. And we've looked at several of the stops along the way as St. Paul took the message of Jesus into Europe and Asia. So over the course of these 28 chapters, the story of the church has unfolded just as Jesus said that it would back in chapter 1 witnessing to his glory in sort of concentric circles moving out from the center in Jerusalem. But it's worth noting that from sort of the, the opposite perspective, what we might call the perspective of Western civilization, it's actually been moving toward the center, the center of power, right? Because it started in, let's face it, a rather backward backwater of the Roman Empire, known as Palestine, and moved through Europe and Asia and now, in chapter 28, has finally come to the very heart, the very center of the empire, Rome itself. And all the drama, building, as we will see, to the ongoing work of the church of Jesus Christ, even in us, even today. But let's take a look at the details of St. Paul's stay in Rome in this final chapter, Acts 28. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn there with me. As we encounter first the conditions that have compelled Paul to Rome. Read with me, starting in verse 17 of Acts chapter 28. After three days, that is, three days after he arrived in Rome, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, the first feature of St. Paul's explanation of his journey to Rome is an interesting and, and perhaps a, a rather strategic understatement of the circumstances and his treatment in Jerusalem. So the fact of the matter is that in Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jewish people incited an angry mob that seized Paul and wanted to stone him. And when the Romans arrested him, it was actually first just to preserve his life. They took him into custody to rescue him from the mob. But Paul indicates by his words here that he held no grudge against his countrymen for it. Even though he had every means as a Roman citizen to pursue some, you know, sort of right of satisfaction for all that he suffered, he says here that he had no charge to bring against the Jews. Like Jesus who suffered incredible injustice and yet, in the words of Isaiah, was like a lamb that is silent before its shearer. 
St. Paul does not pursue justice, but allows the unjust treatment to pass, sort of as par for the course, wanting only to have his name cleared, which eventually he will. Actually, traveling to Rome was one of St. Paul's ministry objectives. Furthermore, the Spirit spoke through some of the early church's prophets to indicate that Paul would go to Rome, and in fact, to even indicate how he would be led there. Remember, a prophet actually takes off his belt and ties it around Paul's hands and says, in this way, you will be led. So Paul has no intention of pursuing satisfaction or retribution. He takes the Jewish opposition in Jerusalem and his present house arrest in Rome all in stride, all as part of God's plan for him. A plan that he still has a part in. And so Paul comes to the reason he asked these Jewish leaders to come to see him. He says in verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. St. Paul uses his circumstances as a prisoner of the empire to set up his sharing of the good news of Jesus. Not only has Caesar provided his way of travel to Rome, he has also given him a good reason to be heard by his fellow Jews. Jews, even those living in the heart of the Roman Empire, presumably there to do business with the Romans, still, frankly, despised the Romans. So there may be a little bit of, you know, sort of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of uh, reasoning going on here. Paul's opening salvo to try to get his hearers on side and sympathetic is an account is that it is on account of the very hope of Israel, their shared hope. Now, the Roman Jews are, well, frankly, kind of diplomatic now in their response to Paul. And so they say to him, we have not received letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Basically saying, we don't know you. So we won't, we're not ready to reject you. But neither are we ready to adopt you as one of us because it sounds an awful lot like you're a part of this sect of the Nazarenes and we have heard all sorts of stuff about them. So I guess, since we haven't gotten any directions from headquarters, we need to listen to what you have to say and we'll make a decision for ourselves. And that sets us up for St. Paul's final gospel appeal. Verse 23. When they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, notice something that we've seen before in our series. The scriptures, all of them, not just Matthew through Revelation, but Genesis through Malachi as well, all of them point to Jesus. And likewise, what has become known as Christianity was not some you know, invention of the first century. The faith of the church Faith in Jesus is the fulfillment of the most ancient monotheistic faith tradition in the world. 
when we come to talk about watershed moments, Jesus is the focal point of history. He is the terminus that everything from Genesis 1-1 was pointing toward. And he is the genesis of life in the spirit and everything that comes since him is looking back on. That is the central message of the scriptures. That is the central message of St. Paul to his fellow Jews in Rome. And so we read that some were convinced, but most weren't. Which leads us to the crux of the chapter. Ready for it? Verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Boy, they were with you right up until now, Paul. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, says Paul, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Boom. Watershed moment. Just as we saw in Corinth, how Paul shook out his robes, left the synagogue, set up shop next door in the house of Titius Justice. Here Paul says, that from now on is the pattern and the plan of God. The gospel now goes to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea have heard. Even the uh, Jews in dispersion have heard. Their fate is now in their hands. How will they respond? Now, unlike several traditions within Christianity throughout the subsequent ages, this is not St. Paul consigning the Jewish people to damnation. That is not what this is. In fact, Paul had already written in his letter to the church in Rome several years prior, he said that the Gentiles are now streaming first into the kingdom, kind of cutting to the head of the line so that the Jews may perhaps be provoked by jealousy, he says, and also come with them. So this is not Paul saying, forget it, Jews, you had your chance. You're up a creek. He is, however, saying, this is the phase of the plan that we're in now. The gospel has gone throughout Jerusalem and all Judea. As I said, even the Jews of the diaspora have heard. Now the gospel is headed out to the uttermost ends of the earth. Which, interestingly enough, is us, brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about that? We are the new world, right? Not even known to the people of the Old and New Testaments uttermost ends of the earth but one day the gospel would even come here and then keep going beyond to other unreached unknown places yet this here in Acts 28 is the watershed moment this is the way St. Luke ends his account with our eyes fixed on the horizon as if to say you believers of successive generations what will you do now with this good news of Jesus, with this gospel presence carried forward? And that's the question 
that the text poses to us. Where will you be the Lord's gospel presence? Because there are still gospel deficient areas that need it. Unless you think, oh, I could never take the gospel anywhere. There are too many factors that would hinder me, hinder my ability. Consider the rest of the text. In verse 30, we read, He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The Lord continues to use Paul despite being under house arrest. During this time, St. Paul will write the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus, and 1 Timothy, five books of our New Testament. He was also available, according to the text, to meet with anyone who came to him, happy to give them a personal sermon or catechism class. St. Paul spent these two years literally chained to a Roman soldier. He couldn't go out at all, but that didn't stop him from continuing the work of the gospel. To draw in another theme we've looked at, at over the course of this series, he was still able to look for what God was doing and to join him in it. To look at what God was doing, even in this confinement, and join him in it. We know from references in his letters that some of those Roman guards that he was chained to, you know, they probably, you have to imagine they were like casting lots or drawing straws or whatever for who has to be tied to the fanatic today, right? But we know from some of his letters that some of them came to faith in the Lord Jesus as well. The church in Rome was strengthened and expanded during this time, presumably as believers would bring seekers to Paul so that they could be with him, so that he could proclaim the kingdom to them and teach them, as Luke says. And Luke's very deliberate in his wording, albeit kind of ironic. He says, despite his chains, Paul continues to minister with boldness and without hindrance. Chains feel like a hindrance to me. You know, does chains sound like a hindrance to you? But to Paul, they were nothing but a factor to be accounted for as he went about his gospel business. And so the question that puts to us is what are the hindrances, real or imagined, what are the hindrances that we immediately go to identify, throw up as barriers, obstacles that we see to our bearing the gospel presence of Jesus to the world. No, there's just no way I could ever really be used as Jesus' gospel presence. I'm too old or I'm too young. I'm just a kid. I don't even know any unbelievers. I'm not sure I want to put my reputation on the line and out myself as a Jesus follower in my workplace. Or, God can't use me, I'm damaged. I'm not the best example of faith. I have too many issues that I'm working on myself. I have a lot of questions that I'm struggling with. How could I share anything about the faith with someone else? Friends, it is the plan and purpose of God that all of his people would be his gospel presence in places in this world that still need 
that presence desperately. And it is his plan and purpose that we could be his presence boldly and without hindrance. We look at St. Paul's chains and think that puts a damper on things. Paul and Jesus with and within him saw them as an opportunity to spend two years at the center of the empire sharing the light of Christ in person and through the written word. We look at the circumstances of our lives and often all we see is hindrance. But Jesus looks at them and sees opportunity. As one of our leaders said to me recently, and I'm not using that euphemistically, he really sees it as an opportunity. You're broken, you're damaged, sure, but I can use you to share life with broken and damaged people in a vulnerable and genuine way. You're not too young. Young people need the gospel presence too. Older adults, Jesus is not done with you. You don't have to get a reputation as a religious zealot to be his presence in your workplace or with your family or with your neighbors. You feel you are too busy managing life to add one more thing? The Lord can meet you. I would challenge you to think. Could the Lord meet me even in the midst of busyness and use me there? We've watched the way that the early church carried this gospel presence of Jesus from Jerusalem through Samaria and even now here toward the outward horizons of the ends of the earth. And the story continues as we take up the call and the challenge. Where does Jesus want to use us? to be his presence today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, it is a daunting task to consider trying to live our lives for you, to be the very presence, the hands, the feet the spirit of Jesus to people in our world today. And especially, I, I, I admit it, as we oftentimes struggle along thinking I am barely keeping it together for myself, don't have a lot of margin to think about others. But you are the same Lord who said, these things are poss- impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. So, Holy Spirit, we once again turn to you. We ask, we invite you to breathe the life of your presence freshly into us. Even as we pray at the end of our liturgy, that we would go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of your Spirit to do the work you have given us to do as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. So, Lord, it is to him, to you, that we pray. Our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.